The Athletic. Totally football show. Today, Champions League. Group stage concludes with high fives in Haifa and Longley the Francais in Marseille. Plus, a shock injury. Will some be out in Qatar? We check the forecast. And look ahead to the Premier League as Arsenal visit Chelsea and Liverpool head to Spurs in a very big weekend, but also a quiet one. All that, plus journalism and Ronnie Radford in this Totally Football Show. All right then, listener, this Totally Football Show coming to you from the 3rd of November 2022 and featuring, excitingly enough, Duncan Alexander, Dom Fifield and Michael Cox. Hello. 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 Mm-hmm. Nice. Lovely to see you all. Loads to discuss today. Before we begin, let's have a quick salute to a part of the game's history, Ronnie Radford, who passed on on... On Wednesday, score of one of the most iconic goals in FA Cup history, perhaps English football history. Radford. Now Tudor's gone down for Newcastle. Radford again. Oh, what a goal! What a goal! Radford the scorer. Ronnie Radford. What was he doing shooting from there? Indeed, Duncan. (laughs) John Motson. Uh, there. February 1972, this of course, before they had football pitches. Uh, top division, Newcastle United visiting non-league Hereford United in the FA Cup third round. Malcolm McDonald had scored for Newcastle. Radford there with a late equaliser from 35 yards that took the game to extra time where Ricky George got the winner. Hereford becoming the first non-league team to beat a, a top flight side for 32, no, 23 years at the time although they got put out in the following round by West Ham. But but that goal became legend. Radford, a lovely man by all accounts. Why was that goal so uh, iconic for so many people? It was on a lot of videos. No, gen- genuinely, I think there were, there's a loop of around 25 goals from the 70s and 80s that were on a lot of like videos and stuff um, in the late 80s, early 90s. So... Um, there was the one, the free kick that went into the stanchion was that at Highfield Road, I seem to remember. Yeah. Um, and so basically, I think for for the, obviously the people that were around then, it was a mm. you know there weren't many goals shown live on telly and stuff, and you know highlights and stuff. But but I think it's one of those goals that was shown a lot for a lot of years. So it's kind of embedded itself into multiple generations. So. Also, I think when you watch football from that era with the pitches like that and the balls like that. You didn't see as many goals like that. I mean, these days, if someone smacks one in for 40 yards, it's still a great goal, but it's not something you've never seen before. Mm. And I imagine a little bit like when Beckham scored from the halfway line against Wimbledon, a lot of us had never really seen someone score from the halfway line. I bet a lot of people watching that at the time hadn't really seen many people score from 40 yards. Throwing a non-league team knocking out a top flight team then and you're there I mean Sutton United was was the 87 Sutton United against 89 Coventry or maybe 89 that's right because they won the Coventry won the cup in 87 didn't they I mean it's so rare and sparking it with a the goal of that majesty was quite something Mm, the celebration the pitch invasion as well the kids in Parkers the Parkers yeah it's not often you'd see a pitch invasion for an equaliser is it (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't know. I was yeah, at Everton last point. season. There were a few then. Everton. <laughs> In September. Wow. Ronnie Radford there. Uh, 50 years on then and uh, and a bit. Uh, Champions League group stage action midweek. We had the final round of the group stage. Four places and the knockouts were still up for grabs. And they went to Milan, Frankfurt, RB Leipzig and Spurs. Spurs who had that dramatic come from behind 2-1 victory down in Marseille. Also of note, Atletico Madrid finishing bottom of their group for the first time ever. They miss out on even Europa League football. Rangers finishing bottom of their group and compiling the worst group stage record by any club in the Champions League ever. Six defeats out of six, a goal difference of minus 20. Happy and used for Man City's Rico Lewis, who Wednesday night became the youngest player in Champions League history to score on his first start in the competition. Just 17 years and 346 days as he uh, found the net against Sevilla. And also on Wednesday night, that absolutely thrilling finale to the race for first place in Group H. We'll come on to that very shortly. But but Spurs, that was dramatic too, wasn't it? In the course of one game, going from third and out to fourth to second to topping the group again. Uh, Dom and Duncan, you, you were both watching this. If it sounds exciting, actually the first half particularly wasn't. <laughs> Not for Tottenham. <laughs> they didn't really show up or touch the ball in the first half. It was... It, it, unbelievably timid performance from them and quite quite interesting that some of their players and their post-match interviews were suggesting that they they didn't really know what their approach should be in that in that first period where they you know they didn't need to win the game they just needed not to lose it um and at least Marseille scoring the opening goal at least that gave them a bit of focus and it, it sort of simplified the the argument slightly for them the second half because they were better they were better after the break but they can be infuriating aren't they Tottenham they, re- they really can they don't they don't sort of grab hold of occasions um, from the start. They, they they seem to need to be need to, need to be reactive. It must be infuriating. It must have been infuriating. Poor that poor fellow who was sitting next to Antonio Conte in the stands. He must have gone <laughs> through hell that night. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have a touch in the opposition penalty area in the first half. It's only the the third time a team has done that this season in the Champions League, and the other two teams are Rangers and Maccabi Haifa. So, not the sort of company Spurs want to be in. But yeah, like Dom said, it's. Antonio Conte is kind of like the worst manager in the Champions League away from home, knowing that a draw is enough when he's not on the touchline. It was just, it was see what we can do. And it was, they're definitely a, a sum less of their parts, Spurs, than, than they mm. should be. There was a sum less once half time well, come by. And the disastrous first half, which has seen Chantel and Bemba a score against them and then knock Sun Young Min out with uh, what turned out to be a fractured eye socket. This just, what, 17 days ahead of the World Cup? Very, very worrying. And poor mm. old son trudging off looking pretty miserable. So what do you think? We'll, we'll touch more on that later on and his prospects for the World Cup and that kind of thing. But what do you think happened at halftime? Was it Christian Stellini's halftime team talk? Because I imagine he could put a rocket up you. Surely they just need to be reminded they needed to be aggressive. They needed to have a bit more urgency and... and and that, I think the the goal focused the fact they were they were trailing and they, they, they focused their minds and they they looked far more like the team that we expect them to be in the second half. They they didn't swarm all over Marseille, but they had a they had a lot more impetus and and drove forward and actually caused them problems. And I mean, Mbemba, you're talking about there. He was nominally a centre half, wasn't he? He was playing as a right winger for most of the first half, and, and then scores with a header at the back post. And the, I mean, it's just it was ridiculous. It, 
Tottenham should not be letting teams like that dictate the play. But I mean, Marseille, obviously the Velodrome is an amazing ground and stuff mm. and the atmosphere was good, but it's a kind of selection box, memory lane, Premier League team, isn't it, they were playing? And, and even so, yeah, Kolasinic still missed an absolute sitter of a header, which would have made it 2-1. So, And then Spurs kind of put the icing on the cake by basically scoring with the last kick of the game, which took them to the top of the of the group, which I think... I mean, they'll probably get PSG now, but it, it could be crucial. So, Well, that was remarkable as well. And Marseille had something to cling on to there. They, they, they were in the Europa League at that point, and then they give the ball away, and it's suddenly three on one on a counter-attack, and they can see the goal, and suddenly they're out of Europe altogether. Which, mm. I mean, that, that, that is the chaos that sums up Marseille, really. Um, they, they, they don't on do things bike. by halves. <laughs> Longley it was who, um, well, appropriately enough, equalised for uh, Spurs given the nature of this clash with the French. Um, and then, as you say, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, uh, with yet yet more evidence of his increased attacking threat for uh, Spurs. Uh, Bentancur got lots of praise for his second-half performance again. Uh, who stood out for you in the turnaround? I mean, no one kind of stood out massively. I mean, they, as we said, we, they could have lost the game rather than won it. It was a you know smash and grab in some senses. But, I mean, Perisic has now got seven assists from set pieces, and his, his deliveries are... Superb, and that was obviously you know it's not just in this game recently he's done that and and yeah if, if they're going to keep coming from behind like this then then that sort of quality ball is is going to be necessary but I mean I hope Spurs fans are keeping track of the number of last minute winners they're they're racking up because it is it's pretty remarkable in the last year if you count you know games like the the Leicester City one obviously the comeback from two 0 down which never happens as Michael knows at Bournemouth um, so yeah it's. Uh, I, I really struggle to get a grasp on Tottenham this season. They're, they're not playing very well, and yet they're in the last 16 of the Champions League and they're still in a very good position in the league. So if they do mm. start playing well, they could they could go a lot further. All right, interesting. Uh, your reference to 2-0 there, Duncan. Are you suggesting it is a dangerous scoreline after all? Uh, on the south coast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if Spurs do start playing well this weekend. They're going to be up against Liverpool, of course. Dom's going along to that game. But for now, they claim top spot in Group D uh, with the other team going through from that collection. Eintracht Frankfurt, the Europa League winners who defeated Sporting in Lisbon. Curiously, I don't know if you noticed this, there were a lot of empty stands there at the Jose Alvalade. And apparently that was because... Sporting were terrified that Frankfurt would pull the same thing that they did. Do you remember at Barcelona last year when all the Barcelona fans sold their tickets to Frankfurt supporters and and it effectively became a home game for the Germans? So rather than let that happen, Sporting decided to play in front of empty stands. Good Lord, didn't work though. Anyway, uh, Spurs go through, top of their group. In fact, all the English sides have topped their group apart from Liverpool, who, as we mentioned, will be visiting Spurs on Sunday. Liverpool, though, did manage to inflict the first defeat of the season on Napoli on Tuesday. Now, elsewhere in the midweek Champions League action, there was that absolutely thrilling battle for first place in Group H. This group had Paris Saint-Germain and Benfica already through. They were both on 11 points coming into this midweek's games. Juve and Maccabi Haifa, the other two teams, were both on three points. PSG were at Juventus, Benfica were in Israel. Both were expected to win, which would mean that top spot would come down to goal difference. 
PSG started the evening with a goal difference that was plus four better, but a thrilling second half at the Sami Office Stadium saw Benfica score and score again and get closer until, with the 90 minutes just up, they were still only one goal short, and then... Thrilling, thrilling moment that for Jean Mario, who, with a broad grin on his face, immediately turned to the bench. Is it enough? Is it enough? They're looking at the UEFA regulations, seeing that they, they tied on goal difference, would go through in first place on away goals in the group. So how about that? The, the return of the away goals rule. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that as a I've never seen that as a deciding factor in uh in these situations. I mean sometimes away goals in head to head games, but obviously the head to head games are both one all, so away goals overall. Yeah, never aware of that. A little bit like watching the um the Cricket World Cup final a few years ago and just realising England won on boundaries scored, which I didn't realise would ever even come into <laughs> it. But uh, yeah, fair play to them. I mean, the fact that they held PSG in both games, I think is really impressive. I think they might be a good, really good outfit this year. Benfica, they're without Enzo Fernandez last night as well, who's been one of their best players this season. Uh, and the goals they scored, I mean, they're two or three fantastic long ranges. I mean, yeah, I think it's great. It's been a bit of a theme, I think, of the... Um, of this Champions League, that the sides from slightly lesser leagues have, have punched above their weight. And, uh, yeah, good to see a Portuguese side topping a group. Michael mentioned there the, the long-range goals. Maccabi Haifa actually won the game on XG, um, which is... Uh, I mean, they had a penalty, but they were 1.6 versus Benfica on, on 1.5. So it was an unlikely uh, scoreline from the... you know A Ronnie Benfica Radford chance. tribute game, if you will. <laughs> Very much mm. so, yeah. Mm. L. Radford. Uh, Benfica, 22 games now they've played this season in all competitions. Have they lost any? No, they have not. They'll be in pot one on Monday. PSG will be in pot two or whatever it's designated, the non-seeded teams. So they could potentially come up against the likes of Bayern or Chelsea or Man City, Real Madrid even. Yikes. Wow. What What did you make of the draw? Just one Spanish side through, the aforementioned Real Madrid. Four German teams threw out of the five they started off with by Leverkusen failing to progress. Well, our, our, old, uh, our old colleague Nicky Bandini always says that when it's the Champions League draw for the knockout stage, there's almost no point judging it because there's, there's always two months gap between the draw and the mm. game and so much can happen. Sides can sack their manager. I mean, that's never been truer of this season. I mean, we've got a World Cup and an extra month and a bit. So, um, yeah, obviously there's certain teams you'll want to avoid, but I mean, some of these teams could look really different come the knockout stage, especially, you know, some of the outside. I mean, someone like Benfica, if a couple of their players have a good World Cup and move in the in the January transfer window, is the kind of thing I'll I'll sit down and watch the draw and then very much have forgotten who's got who by uh, mid-January, I think. Uh, Milan, uh, Michael, is what you were watching on Wednesday night. Is that right? The, the 4-0 win over Salzburg, which sealed their place in the last 16. Yeah, it was a really good game. I mean, Salzburg needed to win. Uh, Milan needed at least a draw to confirm their uh, their place in the knockout stage. And it was uh, it was quite literally man against boys, this game, because Salzburg's uh, oldest player was 24. And the star of the show was 36-year-old Olivier Giroud, who scored two 
well, neatly taken goals and got two really good assists as well. And he just dominated the game. He's um, clearly the least, I think, yeah, the least mobile of any player on the pitch, but just so much footballing intelligence, great positional sense, really good understanding of midfield runners and how to tee them up. So, uh, yeah, they were obviously, as the scoreline suggests, they were very worthy winners. Mm. Salzburg oldest player, by the way, was the youngest oldest player in a team ever in Champions League history. <laughs> How about that? I mean, it was it was quite an interesting contrast as well because obviously Salzburg had been shaped by uh, you know the Red Bull philosophy, uh, epitomised by Ralph Rangnick, who of course wanted to do the same thing at Milan, wanted to get rid of all these you know would have got rid of Pioli as coach in Maldini and would have got rid of Ibrahimovic and Giroud and Simon Kier. So it's quite interesting to see those players kind of uh, prove their worth maybe 10 years past their sell-by date in, in other people's terms. But uh, yeah, Giroud was the star of the show. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Milan fare when the knockout stages come round. There'll be plenty of interest in one or two of their stars as well. Come January, Rafael Liao in, in particular, who was uh, off on his... Incredible runs in this game. Uh, a great solo goal from Junior Macias as well. He arguably has the greatest backstory in European football. 31 years of age, used to deliver fridges. Uh, Maldini spotted him in an amateur game. All those things. Anyway, uh, Milan through to the knockout stages for the first time in nine seasons. Leipzig also through uh, at the expense of Shakhtar, who will drop down into the Europa League. That was in Real Madrid's group. Uh, it's still been an extraordinary campaign for Shakhtar, given the conditions under which they've been playing. And intriguingly, the Athletics, Adam Crafton and Joey Durso, have actually been with the Ukraine side throughout this Champions League campaign as they cope with the consequences of the invasion uh, by Russia back home. You can hear uh, the new podcast they've made about that called Away From Home, which is pretty sensational stuff and actually will be available from The Athletic this Monday. So look out for that. Very good. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the midweek action before we get on to the Premier League? Just a little shout out for the for the group stage again. 3.17 goals per game. So once again, it's above three goals per game, which is, you know, a lot higher than some domestic leagues like the Premier League. And it's basically averaged pretty much exactly three three goals per game in the group stage for the last 10 years. So it is pretty good entertainment. Um, and I know it gets a little bit, you know, some people aren't too hot on the group stage. And obviously we've only got not long left of this format, but um, it has served up some, some good football once more. Mm, even these final match days of the group stage, which often feature games, which don't really have a lot riding on them, throw up plenty of drama. All right, well, let's look ahead then to what's coming up this weekend in the Premier League. Hello, everyone. I'm Tony Jameson, the new host of the Football Manager Show, brought to you by The Athletic. Football Manager has quite frankly ruined my life, but I'd be completely lost without it. And if those words resonate with you, our podcast will be right up your street with FM23's release inching closer and closer. Every week, myself and Aaron Falloon, a.k.a. RDF Tactics, take a deep dive into our most recent saves. We speak to the makers of the game about how to crack it and take on wacky community challenges suggested by our loyal listenership. So if that sounds like a bit of you, make sure to subscribe to the Football Manager Show wherever you get your podcasts so you never 
miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Big weekend in the Premier League. You've got top of the table Arsenal visiting Chelsea. City, who are a point behind the Gunners, will host Fulham. Spurs, meanwhile, in third, are at home to Liverpool on Sunday. Liverpool, who are down in ninth place, ten points behind Tottenham. Also this weekend, Aston Villa have their first game under Unai Emery. They're at home to Man United. Crikey. Michael, what's your most controversial opinion about this weekend's games? Um, well, obviously, there's some great kickoff uh, excitement here. We've got a, a Sunday midday game. I don't know whether Duncan mm. has stats on, on that. I mean, that is very early. Midday is pretty much the earliest kickoff you can get these days, isn't it? These days, yeah. There was, there was a spell of 11 o'clock in the mm. early 2000s, for the, I think, for a Chinese TV at one point. It was an Everton Man City game that kicked off really early. But yeah, 12 o'clock is it's too early, let's be honest. Particularly this time of year, the sun is in all sorts. I mean, probably won't sit this weekend, to be fair, but it's, it can be in all sorts of bad angles. Hmm. Among the other things we won't see this weekend is Aston Villa's clash with Man United, debut of Unai Emery on the uh, Villa bench. And also a chance for our annual You'll Win Nothing With Kids mention, because it, mm. it was that game... Back in 1995, that Villa win back in 1995, which prompted Alan Hansen's infamous remarks that marks the the last time that Villa actually managed to beat Man United. That was, what, 23 visits to Villa Park ago. It's the longest unbeaten away run against a single opponent in English league history. So Hansen went a bit early, but... I mean, Indeed it's more so. like you can't win anything with 37-year-olds now, I guess. But Although, Man United might beg to differ with that. Mm. I was in Boston, Massachusetts for that one. You were in Boston, Massachusetts, Michael, in 1995 yeah. when Villa beat I was. Man United. Yeah. I don't know whether anyone else has this, but I find that every opening day for about 10 years, I was somewhere abroad because it was the, the school holidays. So usually the opening day of the season would be in, you know... Mallorca or somewhere like that. But on this occasion, yeah. you were in Boston. What were you doing there? Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my uncle was living there at the time, so I went to, went to visit. Very nice. Were you able to see the game? No, I didn't, uh, didn't see any football over there. There was no mention of soccer whatsoever there, mm. despite it being a year after the World Cup. Um, well, much like this yeah. year, when you won't be able to see it either. Uh, will you be ex- You will, will you in be Boston, ex- Massachusetts. That's fair. true, actually, true. ironically. <laughs> I might go to Boston, Massachusetts. Is Boston, Massachusetts like rural fox, where you have to say the whole thing each time? I think it might be. Well, you might have thought I meant Boston <laughs> United. Lincoln Lincolnshire. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. A couple of questions about this game. One, how is Emmy Martinez's head... And also, how excited are we about Unai Emery taking charge? Michael, you sometimes have strong views on these managers. 
No, not really. I mean, I think it's a good appointment. I would be amazed if anyone was excited about Unai Emery taking charge of Aston Villa. But yeah, I mean, it is a good appointment. And I mean, we take it for granted now, but mid-table slash bottom half clubs are able to get extremely good managers Mm. now. I mean, Wolves still in for Lopetegui. I mean, these are managers in days gone by. Well, I mean, literally in Emery's case. And Lopetegui, of course, went to Real Madrid. But these these guys are, let's be honest, attracted by the money they can get. And, of course, a little bit of the, the prestige of the Premier League being, I think, the go-to league. And just the quality of manager you can get, really, is is extraordinary. So, yeah, Emery, I think, has his, um, has his faults. But I think he's almost better the lower the stature of the club he works at, with all due respect to Villa. The situation they're in, they need... Defensive organisation, they need a good tactical plan and they probably need a bit of flexibility, which I think is the main thing they didn't have under Gerard. So, yeah, I'm sure they'll uh, they'll shoot up the table fairly quickly. Hmm. They've been having a, a lively time of it since dispatching CVG. They beat Brentford 4-0 and then lost 4-0 to Newcastle. They now lie one point above the drop. Obviously, Emery's a, a bit of a cup specialist as well and, you know, it'd be good for Villa... Have a little FA Cup run, although that might, you know, if they are in a relegation battle, might not be ideal, but, you know, it's been a while. There you go. Well, the game that's probably dominating most people's attention is the game, uh, the midday game indeed, Sunday, where Chelsea host Arsenal at Stamford Bridge. Mikel Arteta unbeaten on his three trips to the bridge as Arsenal manager. He's won the last two of them as well. And he arrives this time with a 10-point lead on his hosts. Dom, will Aubameyang start? Yeah, I, I, I suspect he probably will. He did in midweek. I think that was almost like a getting him back into some kind of form and rhythm um, run out against Dynamo Zagreb with a view to him playing Sunday. Although it's, it's very, I have to say, it's very difficult predicting anything that Graham Pott will do selection-wise. It's yeah, it's some of it's mind-boggling, but but. I mean, the, he, there were flashes of Aubameyang in midweek. There was a, a lovely shot against the, the crossbar in the second half, which would suggest that he probably will. He probably will play, not least because he'll have something to a point to prove against mm. against. Arsenal. What's the point that he wants to prove, Dom? Well, I mean, the point that he wants to prove is that he should, they shouldn't have got rid of him. But I think the way that Arsenal are playing now, have, have, and the way that Arteta has taken that squad and the emphasis placed on on youth has probably justified the, the decision to get rid. Big midweek win for uh, Chelsea over Dino Zagreb, who'd beaten them famously back on match day one. Bad news, though, for Ben Chilwell, who came off in that game with a hamstring injury. Dom, the yeah. World Cup looming? Yeah, I mean, it didn't look good at all. Phil, sorry for, for Ben Chilwell. He, didn't, he was at the, uh, the Euros last year and didn't, didn't get a minute, I don't think, for, with England. And then he's, he's been coming back from this serious knee injury that was inflicted against Juventus in a Champions League game last season. And Potter's been using him relatively sparingly. He wasn't, obviously, a, a rush of games they've had since the last international break. And he hasn't been playing two or three times a week. So it's not as if he was... He'd been... He wasn't knackered going into this match, that's a bit like that. But he was still making those, those trademark runs in the in stoppage time at the end of the game and that, that, that last one is looked as if he ripped his hamstring and and the way that he limped away f- from Stamford Bridge on crutches would suggest that yeah the World Cup is has gone um, for him 
Um, I think Luke Shaw probably would have been Gareth Southgate's first choice on the left, uh, whether he played three at the back or, or four. But but it does sort of open up possibilities for for other left backs, stroke left wing backs, or even Kieran Trippier. Tri- yeah, on that Trippier's. Side. Yeah. yeah. It's but it's terrible news for Chilwell and, and and unlucky as well, desperately unlucky. I mean, the next two weeks are going to be pretty harrowing, I think, because I think there's going to be quite a lot of injury. I mean, there's been so much football and it's been, a, I mean, I've got no numbers on this, but there seems to be a quite a lot of hamstring injuries at the moment, which is obviously a classic overplayed kind of injury. So, yeah, it's going to be yeah quite quite sad, really. And I think for Chelsea, you know, Reese James and, and Chilwell are so important to their creativity and, and to be without both of them in this game, I think hands a pretty big advantage to, to Arsenal. Although Chelsea arguably the the club where anyone can play in that position for Grand Potter, so well, we should see what he comes Arsenal up with. Arsenal are going for three wins at Stamford Bridge for the first time mm. since the Rubik's Cube is invented, which I think is how Grand Potter chooses formation sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial, Duncan. Can, can Mikel Arteta do a Seagulls on the... On 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 <laughs> Graham Potter after Brighton's Steve victory last weekend. Crap on his car. What? <laughs> <laughs> Be in London for no particular reason. Never get that with seagulls. Caesar's over there. What are you doing? <laughs> it's it's about the start, isn't it? I mean, Brighton. A lot of teams actually since Potter came to to Chelsea, and actually, arguably towards the latter end of Thomas Tuchel's time. Started very brightly in matches against Chelsea. Chelsea seemed to struggle to, to get into a rhythm of games. Um, and But Brighton were one of the first teams, the first team under under Potter, that, that, that actually took the chances that they that they created, and or, albeit Chelsea scored two of them for them. If, if Arsenal start like that, and Chelsea, moreover, start slack, then there has to be a chance, because the confidence that Arsenal are playing at the moment, the, the verve that they've got, but... But you'd imagine that Chelsea would be a bit more steeled for this, and that they would they would come out the come out the block slightly quicker. We shall see. Arsenal, the only team in the Premier League to have scored in every single fixture so far, they're top of the table on thirty-one points. Nine times previously in Premier League history, a side has had thirty-one points after twelve games. Only one of those nine has failed to go on and win the title. Yes, it was Kevin Keegan's Newcastle in ninety-five, ninety-six. Can we see Arteta breaking down late on in the season? Shouting that Pep's got to go somewhere and get something. Be good. Drama. I'd love to see it, wouldn't you? Mm. Pep, who's looming behind Arteta with his Man City outfit. Man City this weekend hosting Marco Silva's spunky Fulham. Fulham? No, Fulham, who's got to stand as one of the revelations of this season. Widely predicted to be heading down at the end of this campaign the way they always do. Instead, they're, what, seventh? Incredible. Michael, again, where did you stand on Marco Silva before this season started and has that changed? I never really understood the great amount of fuss about him. I must be honest. He had a, a funny spell, didn't he? He had that brief spell with Hull. Then he was at Watford where he did well, but they got rid of him because he wanted to go to Everton. Then he didn't do the snake at Everton. Snake. Yeah, he was, a, he was a snake, apparently. Um, but I've been really impressed by Fulham this year. I think from the first game against Liverpool, they just competed really well. I think Paulinho midfield has been one of the best signings. 
And he's clearly done such a good job with, with Mitrovic. I mean, the side plays in a different way and is more suited to what Mitrovic wants, nearer the penalty box. But I think Mitrovic always, uh, also looks at a much better all-round player. He's linked play quite well. And they've got lots of just quite nice players, quite talented technical players, maybe not players who have done it regularly in the Premier League in the past, but I just really enjoy watching uh, uh, Pereira's a wonderful set-piece yeah. delivery. Um, De Cordova Reed is just one of those players who just always seems to be quite prominent on match of the day. I, I you know, aren't watching <laughs> Fulham every week, but he's always just popping up with chances, whoever he's playing for. I think it's his third Premier League club, is it? Um, and I think the interesting thing is they've, they've had quite a settled defence. I mean, it's kind of the same defence that looked completely out of place two seasons ago, but with a bit more experience, a bit more time together, they look a, a lot, a lot more solid. I mean, They've kind of done what Norwich have been trying to do for years, which is come up, go back down and then, you know, come up again and, and look really good. And it hasn't really worked for Norwich on multiple occasions. But yeah, I mean, Andres Pereira's got created 34 chances this season, which is second only to, to Kevin De Bruyne. So this this will be the two most creative players in the Premier League going head to head. Um, All right. If De Bruyne gets, gets on the field, who knows? Who knows with Pep? City... Five times that uh, Fulham have visited the Etihad in Pep Guardiola's reign there. They've lost all five by an aggregate score of 15 goals to one. Mm. So it'd be quite a thing if Silvers Fulham get something this time around. Well, as someone who predicted Mitrovic would score more than Haaland, uh, it's quite a big game for me, actually. So, um, yeah. All right. That's three o'clock on Saturday, Duncan. Sunday at 430 it's Spurs Liverpool. We'll be talking about that next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, Sunday at 4.30, Spurs are hosting Liverpool. Don Fifield, you'll be settling into the press box, laptop at the ready. Or is the plan to struggle along at half-time when things might actually be picking up a bit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I'm, weirdly, I'm not actually I'm not actually going into into the game. I'm, I'm going to go and talk to some people before the match. Um, it's... Sunday, maybe this is all linked up with the kickoff um, furore. Was it furore mm. we had earlier? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much. Fury, even, very much fury. You know? Okay. Um, Manchester City play on Saturday, and, and the, the six other teams that we might count as contenders 
um, all play Sunday. So my task this weekend is is to write a piece looking at or talking to people from those six clubs about the forlorn pursuit of Manchester City and whether teams can actually ever hope to win the Premier League anytime soon um, other than City. So so I suspect I'll be I'll be hanging around on the Seven Sisters Road um, ahead of kickoff and then trying to find somewhere dry to write my copy. I see. Will you have previously visited Stamford Bridge to Well that to... that is that is the plan. It may um it may be scuppered by uh, under fourteens junior football, grassroots football earlier in the day, but you know, if they will pick these kickoff times at mm. midday, then you don't stand much of a chance to have much of a life on a Sunday. So there you go. I see. It's the um, Do, it's the qu- quiet weekend, isn't it, Dom? If it the, is the uh, quiet weekend. Yeah. yeah. Will, will that I'm affect your your? The <laughs> 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 really struggle with that one, um, but uh, obviously, I only ever encourage the kids on the sidelines. I don't shout at them in any way. What's the so. quiet weekend? So it's, it's it's a response to the sense that a lot of supporter grassroots kids football is is too OTT too abusive. So. I believe I'm saying everyone has to be caught. Even those, even the managers have been told not to yeah. uh, get involved. To. Which I gather for kind of under six, under sevens football, often you're kind of, you know, having to tell them which way they're shooting and stuff like that. So it <laughs> sounds like it might be quite chaotic. <laughs> You'd love to see that instituted at a, at a national level. Not necessarily a quiet weekend, although it would have its merits. It's pretty much what happened for to Spurs in midweek, though, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe all grassroots football should have like Ron Atkinson with a nineties mobile phone sat on a gantry phoning down stuff rather than shouting. <laughs> Not sure that's necessarily the intent here, Duncan, but Well I mean as someone who goes to you know yeah. under thirteens football and last weekend witnessed uh, some absolute to be frank, disgraceful scenes from the opposition who I won't mention, but What happened they might, Well just Shouting, abuse, um, mm. lack of discipline—very poor. Yeah, well, I was—it is gen- genuinely a massive issue in yeah. no, no, absolutely football, yeah. junior football. It's and, and this this weekend is, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it goes because I, I suspect it will. I suspect it will be broken. I suspect. Mm. I suspect that people won't be able to contain their. I want to say enthusiasm, but it isn't always enthusiasm. That's no. the problem. As I say, love to see that rolled out across the nation at all levels. And I can imagine a lot of fans would get behind that too. Mm. Uh, Liverpool visiting Spurs then. And this is 4.30 on Sunday. Spurs without two key attackers already in Kulosevsky. Although am I right in thinking he's making his way back now? Richarlison isn't. And Sun Hyung-min with that fractured eye socket courtesy of uh, Chancel Mbemba midweek. South Korea play Uruguay on the 24th of November. That's about, well, it's just under three weeks away. So a lot of concern now over whether probably the biggest Asian football superstar is going to be able to feature in the World Cup. Uh, I imagine they'll be measuring up for masks. Producer Charlie thinks that's going to become a thing at the World Cup. Fans in masks in homage to Son Hyung-min. It is a huge, if he is unable to play, that is... You know, there's some countries where it's about the team and the squad, but he is so important. And I went to Seoul a few years ago to do some uh, football content, and um, the, the every, all questions, everything was about Son. Like literally every single thing. He is just 
you know, I imagine the the equivalent of the the Beckham metatarsal healing double page spread is is big today. Yeah, you'd think it's not unprecedented for somebody to return. Kevin De Bruyne did it after a pretty similar injury in the Champions League final and was playing at the European Championship three weeks later with a mask. So, I mean, best wishes to Sun Hyung Min. As regards this game, there's reports as well that Christian Romero won't be playing for Spurs again before the World Cup, which is a concern, I imagine, for all Tottenham fans, given given the difference he makes them. Liverpool, though... Has anyone got got a handle on what we might expect from them on Sunday? On Tuesday, they beat Napoli, the first team to do so this season. They've previously, not long ago, beaten Manchester City. But between those two results, they've also lost back-to-back Premier League games against bottom three sides. What do you think we're going to see from Klopp's team this time around? Yeah, I, I mean, that is the pattern, isn't it? They seem to be getting up for big games and really struggling against the smaller teams. I don't know whether that's to do with physicality and they're saving their energy for the big ones or whether it's more about psychology but it does seem to be a bit of a pattern not just in terms of the results but actually in terms of the performances as well um but yeah I I feel like this game might actually suit Liverpool I feel like you know as Dom kind of alluded to there's just a sluggishness about Tottenham I think for long periods and if Liverpool can get back towards their usual kind of intensity it feels like the midfield zone, which I think has been their issue at points, I feel like they can dominate that. I know I think Benton calls playing really well. I think Hoiberg's playing quite well at the moment, but often Spurs just seem a bit understaffed in that zone. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to this game, but I agree. I think it's two quite unpredictable teams at the moment. Is it is a key to getting more out of Spurs Basuma? If, if, if Basuma was playing more like the Basuma that had been at Brighton. He would add something to that midfield as a as a as a trio. That's not that's not a bad midfield on on, on paper. Maybe that would set a more upbeat tempo. But he seems to me that he doesn't hasn't quite hasn't quite hit the ground running at, at Spurs. He hasn't hasn't quite you know lit it up in the way that we thought he might. Yeah, there's been flashes, hasn't there? There's been a couple of performances. I was at the game against Leicester. They won five two, where Basuma came on after about an hour, maybe before. And made a really big impact as, as Spurs kind of coasted to victory. And you wonder whether actually, because he seems torn between these two systems, but if Kulusevski's out, if Richardson's out and Son's out, then he's running out of options. There's clearly a, a couple of other players that he doesn't really like. So you think it's probably more likely that Pesuma will come into that as a, as a consequence of those injuries. This game will be featuring Duncan's favourite player currently, Duncan. Yeah, Darwin. He's... Um... Mm. He's good. Like, he's still getting criticised, but he's just so fun. And he's, you know, he scored seven goals in his first 15 appearances, which is only one fewer than Fernando Torres did. And Torres probably started nearly all of those games. And, and once again, Nunes came on in, in midweek and bundled it in and just got in everyone's faces. And, you know, you, you could argue that maybe he is better as a sort of last half an hour super sub at the moment as, you know, agent of chaos. And Liverpool did go back to 4-3-3 and... Played Curtis Jones on the sort of wide left, uh, yeah, wide left role, which is obviously where he used to play as a kid, and hasn't really ever got a chance in the first team much in that position. So it does feel slightly like Klopp's gone, like you do when you're playing a you know football manager and you've tried to change formation to improve results, and then you just go back to the the classic, and maybe that that will sort everything after all. Yeah, so far they've had upticks in the Champions League, particularly. 
but not so much in the league apart from that Man City result. They currently lie, as you've probably heard, closer to the bottom three than they do the top four. Remarkable stuff. That's Spurs Liverpool, which will have Dom roving around. What question are you going to ask people about Man City, by the way, Dom? I've absolutely no idea, to be fair. Really? <laughs> I've got a couple of days to think about it, so I'll worry about okay. it. Then. Maybe I'll do it on the, tra- on the train out. Actually, there are no trains on Sunday, are there? I'll have to drive up. Hmm. Mm. Hopefully it's not a, a quiet weekend in terms of people responding to interviews. Right. Yeah, I hope, <laughs> hope the weather's clement as well, because that might you know, seriously impinge your, your polling. Uh, good, looking forward to reading the results of that, Dom. You're not the only athletic man making a road trip at the moment, though, because today's 3rd of November, 17 days to the World Cup, and if you look out your window, listener, and you happen to live near the M20, that jaunty jalopy you might espy making its way down to Dover is Nick Miller, Laurie Whitwell, and friends on their way to literally Qatar in a kind of part Mad Max, part John Candy road trip of dreams. Shortly before setting out today, Nick dialed in to explain. So, uh, myself, other totally regulars, Laurie Whitwell and Martino, the cameraman, are oh, yeah. travelling to the World Cup via, a, well, we think at the moment, 17 countries. Um, it's going to take us about 17 days and we're going to go be going through Europe and parts of Asia to reach the World Cup, speaking to people along the way and finding out what people really think about the World Cup. I see. You're driving, essentially, yes? Uh, Various modes of transport. We're going to be driving some other way. We're going to be getting trains some other way. We're hopping on boats. We will probably find some bikes at some point, some of those irritating e-scooters. Basically, any kind of mode of transport we can we can find, and a couple of uh, couple of planes where it's slightly more unavoidable. But I'd uh, say. yes, taking the scenic route most definitely. How well do you know Laurie and Martino, the cameraman? Well, not as well as I'm going to know them by the um, right. by a few days into this, crammed into various tight spaces along the way. You know, it could be the start of something beautiful. It could be the, uh, a complete disaster. Who knows? Let's hope for the former. Okay. But the exciting news is that people will be able to follow you on Twitter and Instagram, or at least follow at the Athletic FC on Twitter and Instagram, and get a kind of stage-by-stage breakdown of quite possibly yours. Uh, well, well, exactly. Yeah, if you if you want to see two men very slowly unraveling as they travel halfway across the world, then uh, follow the Athletic FC. Follow me, uh, Nick Miller seventy nine on Twitter, or Laurie Whitwell at Laurie Whitwell. Um, if you're a uh, have signed up to the Athletics Daily newsletter, you'll get a day by day diary of um, of where we are and what we're doing and to what extent we are unraveling. And we'll we'll also be producing various other pieces of content and uh, at the end of the whole thing there will be Mm. a documentary which martino is going to be putting together that will go out on um the youtube channel of our old friends tifo brilliant okay will you have any kind of support vehicle or support staff we have uh, a support staff we have a, a a very nice um security chap called john who's going to be um helping oh, us so there's four he, of you in the car so there's, there's going to be four of us yeah john john's most recent assignment was in ukraine so hopefully this is going to be a, a, a walk in the park for him mm. i'm sure it'll include one of those somewhere along the way wow that sounds quite an incredible uh, journey quite possibly a life-changing experience Nick. 
And uh, I imagine you're really looking forward to it. Uh, I'm 50% excited, 50% absolutely terrified. So uh, let's hope I survive. I'm all the way thrilled to follow it, as I'm sure you are, listener. Nick, best of luck. And who knows, maybe we can get an update along the way on your road, quite literally, to Qatar. I would be delighted to. The Athletics' very own Phineas Fogg there, uh, just ahead of his departure. And and there's no way that's not going to go extremely smoothly. I'm going to Doha for a couple of weeks, and I reckon to get there, mm. that will be four modes of transport. I oh, mean, yeah. I'll get the tr- I'll get the train to the airport, probably a bus to the actual plane, then the plane, and then right. the underground when I get to Doha. Right. Throw in a scooter on your way to the train, and you're up to five. And what you're effectively <laughs> saying is that Nick's making a bit of a fuss over nothing. Are you taking a security guard with you, Michael? <laughs> uh, no, no. Maybe I'll take a selfie stick and uh, do some kind of rival rival documentary. <laughs> Let's everyone make documentaries about going to Qatar. Uh, Dom, you make a documentary. Bike. I have looked mm. up bike hire when I'm there. They've got in Qatar. Of... I'm told yeah, there are no they've... bicycles in Qatar. No, that's not true. They've got public uh, the equivalent of the cycle hire scheme. They've also got the longest continuous cycle path in the world. Um, really? In in Qatar, which I looked at quite excitedly, and it just it goes to absolutely nowhere. It's just like. 30 kilometres of, of nothingness. So I probably won't bother with that. Good interval training. I once went to a game uh, in Gibraltar where you walk directly from your plane to the ground, which I think is right. quite, quite, cool. quite rare. Yeah. Because it's that the first nice. thing you come to, really. in Because you land in Spain, really, mm. and then have to walk over the border. And the first thing you come to is, I believe, the only football stadium in, in Gibraltar. You'd have to think it would be. Mm. In terms of unusual ways of getting to grounds, I also really like uh, the Penzo in Venice, mm. where you go by slipper, slipper launch. Yeah, or Aperetto, if you know. But properly by slipper launch. So the players have to turn up feeling a bit wobbly. You know, visiting teams come out of the boat, haven't quite got their legs back, take a half a football to find their feet again. Magnificent. Anyway, best of luck to Nick Miller and who else? Laurie and John especially. And Martino, the cameraman. The Premier League rolls on without them. This weekend, bottom three, Leicester have Everton. Wolves are up against Brighton. And Forest host Brentford. Nottingham Forest against Brentford. The Bees have lost their last two away games, 4-0 and 5-1. They're going to be without the suspended Ivan Tony. So that might be good news for Forrest after the thumping they received last weekend. Brighton, meantime, who had a famous victory at home to Chelsea last time out, are going to be visiting Wolves. Wolves without the suspended Diego Costa. Wolves who have opened new talks with Julian Lopetegui and have told him he doesn't have to turn up until after the World Cup, report suggests. That's interesting. Do you envisage another victory for Brighton who won this fixture last season 3-0? Maybe. Uh, it's famously, well, I say famously, it's the longest uh, name Classico, top flight history, Wolverhampton Wanderers against Brighton and Hove Albion. So 43 characters. Um, let's hope there's 22 characters, etc. on the pitch and so on. But um, yeah, I mean, Brighton, they are a little bit more hot and cold this season. 
Um, they've won two two Premier League games with three or more goals this season. Um, they've never done three of those in a, a single campaign. So you could see them utterly dominating Wolves. But Wolves, they're... I, I still think Wolves are better than their their form suggests. I mean, yes, they can't score goals, which you know is a fairly important part of football. But they're they're okay. So I'm. I mean, I, what I don't get with Wolves is their after the 2011-12 season, their kind of relaxed notion to waiting for a manager. I mean, that that kind of that's what cost them back then. Um, I know there's only a couple of games left before the World Cup, but you'd think they'd want to get Lopetegui in as soon as possible. If, if well, they I could. think they tried, and he, he wasn't very keen. So, I mean, I, th- I think that they will make that appointment. I mean, he hasn't. Uh, ultimately, they will. But he's he's there've been family issues that have been that have prevented it happening already. Really, my understanding. So, um, I think he will end up at at Molyneux, but I think the timing has to be right for him and his family as well. Wolves currently two points from safety in penultimate place in the Premier League. Leicester, who are just above them, are going to be at Everton. Leicester in the bottom three, despite having scored more goals this season than fifth place Man United and sixth place Chelsea. Can that be right? Leicester have scored more goals than Chelsea and Man United. It's true. For fans of virtual reality, this is the most overperforming defence, Everton, against the biggest overperforming attack, Leicester. So something's got to give. What will it be, Duncan? Well, Jamie Vardy hasn't scored many goals, has he? So maybe Pickford will come out on top. Perhaps. Perhaps. Back-to-back clean sheets for Jordan Pickford with Everton. They're only three points above the Foxes, uh, the Toffees. So the bottom half I find so confusing at the moment. Leeds, Villa and Saints are in there too. They're They're all only one point above the bottom three. You've got Leeds taking on Bournemouth this weekend in the first ever top division meeting between these two teams. Bournemouth have had three defeats in a row under Gary O'Neill after his excellent initial run. Leeds, meantime, are coming off that famous victory at Anfield. Uh, still listener uh, Ron Al Leeds, not optimistic, while hailing the work of Tyler Adams and also Aronson. He says, uh, we seem to raise our game against top sides, but we can't get the results against ones we'd hope to get something from. As such, Bournemouth... Is a massive game. Every game is a big game for Leeds. Uh, are you excited to see Jesse Marsh prolonging his his stay at Ellen Road, Michael? To a certain extent, I do find him quite interesting. I thought maybe a good thing for him. This might sound counterproductive, but maybe a good thing for him would have been if Leeds actually had gone down, and I think they would have been able to rebuild, and he would have had a bit more breathing space to build something long term. I just feel like when you're constantly fighting at the bottom of the Premier League. You can chop and change a bit. I'm still not completely convinced they have a particular philosophy or quite playing in the way that he wants them to. Obviously, last week's uh, last weekend's win was um, was a huge boost for them. But at times I've seen them, I've been a little bit confused what they're trying to do on the ball. So yeah, I'm I'm on the fence about Jesse Marsh. I think. Okay, Bournemouth big game for them. Southampton taking on Newcastle, equally huge. A Newcastle team who are in the top four now. They took more points than anybody in the league in October. And Saints have the worst home record in the Premier League, just one win out of six. The other game this weekend, Dom, it's your Crystal Palace. We're going to be visiting West Ham. Are you loitering around that one at all or not? That's another one at two o'clock. Unfortunately, 
neither of those two clubs fall into the category that I'm exploring, but that's oh, yeah. the game I probably want to loiter around. But there you go. Right. Never mind. Palace haven't had a win away from home all season, Dom. No, and they, he, they were quite ambitious with their selections away from home in recent weeks, and they placed an awful lot of emphasis on a midfield with, with absolutely zero defensive surety in it. Um, so it'd be interesting to see the, select, the, the, the team Vieira picks on Sunday. But look, to be honest, I thought West Ham played really, really well for periods at, at Manchester United last, last weekend, particularly towards the end. And they look as if they're a team that is just waiting to, for liftoff. Unfortunately, they'll probably do it now and then they'll have to have a pull hiatus during the World Cup and have to do it all again in, in December, January time. But there's, there's a lot of quality in that West Ham team. That's quite a daunting trip. There's um, a little nice little fact about uh, Odson Edouard, who's scored mm. nine goals for Palace. All of them have been in London. Obviously, if he scores in this game, it will count as well. Only Tony Adams and Neil Ardley have ever scored all goals. Um, prim- you know, more Premier League goals than all of them have come in London. Um, and it was good to see Neil Ardley. Like one of the great forgotten seasons in Premier League history was Neil Ardley in ninety six, ninety seven, when he came second with eleven assists behind Eric Cantona. Um, Wimbledon were really good then, and so it was nice to see nice to see these names pop up now and again. I'm I'm amazed Tony Adams never scored a Premier League goal outside London. Felt like he used to get a few per season. Good fact. Yeah, he only scored strictly within the M25. So I did yeah. Mm, sorry. How about, does Watford count as a London club to you, Duncan? No, no. Hmm. What about you, Michael? Do you, where do you stand on Watford as a metropolitan outfit? Um, I did once call Watford against Arsenal a derby on the basis their training grounds are next door yeah, that, to each mm. other. And right. Watford fans got, got really annoyed. So did they? Not going to make the same mistake. Hmm. I'm sure when Watford are signing players, they tell them that it's in London, but it's not. Hmm. Uh, yes there you go those are the Premier League fixtures and that is us running out of things to say about them we will return on Monday with our reaction to what actually happens on the field Dom good luck with your your, your trek around the, the, the stadium of uh, London the title chasing stadium of, of London and coming up with some questions for that listener if you have any thoughts what Dom might say to folk outside grounds. I have to say that's one of the activities that I least enjoy uh, is doing the, you know, so-called vox pops, stopping passers-by either, you know, generally in the street with some question because people, I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to assume their motivation, but a lot of times it seems like almost people want to get their revenge on the folk from telly, you know? And, mm. and yeah. So, so I heard some terrible things. Terrible, madam. Anyway, hope you fare... <laughs> better on your uh, in your vox popping on Thank Sunday you, good Duncan what are you up to this weekend I'm actually going to uh, Italy to watch a couple of football games so, no way what are you seeing yeah seeing Milan Spezia on Saturday and ticking off hopefully one of my great desires of life to see Kevin Lasagna in the flesh on, on Sunday and Monza <laughs> against Verona so oh, that'd um, be amazing yeah so looking forward to that mm. how are you getting there Duncan uh hovercraft a hot air balloon and a racing pigeon (laughs) very nice okay um those who wish to stay at home and watch italian football may i just mention the rome derby at five o'clock followed by the so-called derby of italy juventus against inter huge that's on bt sport 
Michael, your weekend? Yeah, just looking forward to, to Sunday, really. Yeah. Um, good games spread out. Yeah, I think uh, should be one of the best days of football so far this season. Yeah, magnificent. Very, very nice. Well, today's been fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Dom, Duncan, Michael, producer Charlie, you, a listener, as mentioned, totally returns on Monday and uh, no doubt that'll be equally enjoyable. So do join us then for now from all of us here. Have a great weekend and goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.